All right, hello everyone, and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webcast and uh, webinar and podcast series. Good evening, getting at that right. I am Cliff Smith, the Washington Project Director of the Middle East Forum, um, and today I'll be talking to Rich Gazal, the Executive Director of In Defense of Christians, about the plight of Christians who are often persecuted in the Middle East. Um, full disclosure, before we get started on that, um, I am recovering from a case of COVID, a mild one, but uh, still not 100%, so if uh, I blub up, please be patient with me. <clears throat> um, the Middle East is a birthplace of Christianity, um, and there are vibrant Christian communities across the region. However, it cannot be seriously doubted that, particularly in recent decades, Middle Eastern Christians have had um, a very serious set of issues to confront and to face persecution across the region. In Iraq, for example, in the 80s, there was an estimated 1.4 million Christians. By 2020, um, particularly after the horrifying persecution at the hands of ISIS, um, that number had dwindled to about 200,000, according to some estimates. <clears throat> On the other hand, uh, Christians in Egypt remain roughly 10% of the country, yet face various um, obstacles legally, uh, occasional violence at the hands of Muslim radicals, and other um, difficulties. Um, so it varies throughout the region, um, but there are always concerns, there are always troubles. It's always a difficult place and they have a unique position in the region. Um, additionally, something Rich has talked to me about before is that there are many ethnic differences at times between Christians and their Arab and Muslim, or Arab Muslim um, and Turkish neighbors. For example, there are Syrians, Armenians, Marianites, and they represent different ethnic groups as well as the fact that they generally hold different faiths, which complicates matters more. Uh, in Defense of Christians is an organization founded and supported by many prominent Christians of the Middle Eastern origin and their supporters um, and are advocates for, the middle, for a Middle East in which the rights of every person are protected and respected regardless of religious creed in which the ancient and diverse Christian and other religious minorities communities of the Middle East thrive peacefully in their native lands. Um, just another full disclosure, Rich and I have worked together on issues concerning Turkey in recent months. Anyhow, hello Rich, how you doing? Cliff, thanks for having me, and it's great to see you're, you're starting to uh, feel a little bit better. I'm doing all right. I'll survive. Um, anyhow, let's just get started, and I'll start with a very broad general question. Um, can you give us a brief overview of the different sects and ethnic groups of Christians that are um, in the Middle East and the challenges they are facing um, in Egypt, to Iran, to Oman, to Turkey, across the Middle East? Certainly, Cliff. Yeah, that's a great question to start off with, because that really does set the context of what we're talking about. Um, as you know, and as I'm sure your audience knows, the Middle East is not a monolith. Uh, it's made of a, a wonderful and very complex tapestry of, of faiths as well as ethnicities. And uh, unlike other places in the world, um, the Middle East is unique because there's such an overlap between uh, faith and, and ethnicity. Often they're tied together in many cases. Um, within Christianity in the Middle East, of course, you have uh, various rites. You have the Byzantine right, you have the Syriac right, the Armenian right, uh, and the Coptic right. Within the, the, the Byzantine right, you have the Melkite Catholic Church, which of course is Catholic as the name suggests, as well as the Greek Antiochian uh, Orthodox Church. Uh, within uh, the Syriac right, you have the Syriac Orthodox, Syriac Catholic Maronite Church, uh, which is uh, also a Catholic Church, as well as the Chaldean Catholic Church. Uh, also, you have uh, the Assyrian Church of the East, uh, which is neither Catholic nor Orthodox. It's sort of its own theology uh, going back centuries, frankly, a history that's longer than we're probably uh, willing to go into today. 
But um, recently in the 60s, I believe it was 1968, uh, the ancient Church of the East uh, became an offshoot of the Assyrian Church of the East. Uh, so the Syriac Rite uh, consists of five or six um, churches that all use the Syriac language in, in its liturgy and in its theology. Uh, of course, the Armenian uh, Rite consists of both Catholic and Orthodox, and then the Coptic Rite in Egypt is uh, primarily Orthodox, but there is a small Coptic Catholic community as well in Egypt. And that's all uh, to say, in addition to those, I should, I should say, uh, there are Protestant churches uh, of each ethnicity throughout the Middle East. So that, that kind of draws a picture of, of the, uh, the diversity and the spectrum of Christian communities in the Middle East. And so um, you mentioned a couple of different things there. One is, um, you know, the different sects of Christianity, where they're located, on their different traditions. Um, and you also mentioned that it's tied to ethnicity. Um, and that can, so um, how much do their separate ethnic, religious, confessional identities um, matter in terms of the, the, the problems they face? In other words, you know, do they face it between each other? Do they face, I know they face it from Islamist frequently. How much of it is from sort of a ethno-nationalist point of view? I mean, there's different angles they come at when they face problems and persecutions and um, discrimination and such. That's correct, yes. So not only are Christians a religious minority, of course, as you suggest in the question, they're also uh, <clears throat> ethnic minorities uh, persecuted along those two major axes, right? They're persecuted for their faith uh, through Islamism, you know, radical Islam as well as political Islam, um, both state and non-state forces, as well as along ethnic and national lines, uh, the primary source being, uh, you know, the Arabist governments that really start to boom and grow uh, in the 50s and then you know, the, the middle 20th century. Um, in order to give your, your audience really a, a good picture and good context, let's rewind about 100 years uh, during the time of the fall of the Ottoman Empire. At the time, uh, in the late, or I should say in the early 20th century, Islamism was surging uh, as a unifying element in what they called the sick man of Europe, what we now call the sick man of Europe, which was the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so this, this Islamist um, uh, zeal and, and unification was quite threatening, as you can imagine, to Christians, which of course resulted in the Armenian genocide, which uh, saw to the deaths of uh, millions, uh, over three million Armenians, uh, Syriacs, Greeks, and other Christian uh, groups in the, in the last days of the Ottoman Empire. So this is quite a monumental effect for Christians in the Middle East. Around that time, the, uh, the uh, concentration of Christians in the Middle East plummeted from about 20% to where it is today, uh, teetering around 2%. So because of that genocide at the, at the hands of the Ottoman Empire, uh, Christians were certainly worried about their future, and rightfully so. Around the same time, after the fall of the empire, um, Europe and the world introduced a new paradigm to the Middle East. Um, statehood, Westphalian uh, statehood, uh, nationalism, which was a foreign idea, a foreign concept in the Middle East up until that point. It was not organic whatsoever. Uh, but the Christians actually did uh, ride this wave, let's say, because they knew that statehood and you know, Western nationalism uh, could provide a, a sort of protection from Islamism that was surging <clears throat> prior to that period. Christians, in fact, were some of, for better or for worse, let's, let's caveat, were some of the forefathers and you know founding um, thinkers behind Arab nationalism, simply because, like I said, it insulated them from from uh, being persecuted for their faith. So it was a neutralizing counterbalance to pan-Islamism, 
Um, but even, of course, secular nationalism, secular Arab nationalism tended toward the extreme uh, in the following decades. So around that time, uh, Christian uh, communities really took hold of this idea of what's known as neo sharubia which basically is uh, Christian communities um, rallying behind their own ethnic nationalism. Um, so the Syriacs, the Copts, um, the, the Maronites in Lebanon, the Assyrians uh, kind of um, grew these narratives of, of a pre-Islamic uh, ethnic identity um, uh, following the genocide and, and the subsequent um, decades. Of course, all of these efforts throughout the 50s and 60s were squashed by, by Arabist governments, particularly uh, the Nasser government in, in, in Egypt, which at the time was united with the Syrian government to form the United Arab bloc. Um, it, was, it was brutal and it was, uh, it was cruel against these Christian groups that were uh, uh, attempting to differentiate, differentiate themselves ethnically, um, even without any national aspirations or national threat. Uh, so the current situation today is uh, these Christian groups have been squashed uh, ethnically and continue to be persecuted uh, religiously. And, you know, Cliff, one final point I want to, you know, mention on this particular question, I think it's appropriate to talk about is in the West, we hear about this idea of Islamophobia. Um, you know, many people view it as, as, you know, differently, of course, you know, there, there may be some legitimate manifestations, but by and large, uh, it's a tool used in the West to, uh, to uh, really target those who, who seek to have um, critical dialogue on the question of Islam. But, you know, that aside, there is this real thing called Christianophobia. Um, Christianophobia is really what is the, the, the what generates uh, Christian persecution today in the Middle East, which really come from a series of misconceptions proliferated by Christianity that contribute to this phenomenon, uh, that of viewing Christians as the other, uh, as colonists, as crusaders, uh, as agents of the West, uh, many circles uh, even view Christianity as a European religion that is uh, invading the lands of, of Islam and of Arabism. Um, the truth is, of course, that Christianity is a native religion. It's a native presence. It has pre-Islamic roots. Um, it, it established and introduced the idea of university and the humanities, arts and sciences and the like uh, to the Middle East and really to the rest of the world. Uh, so really, um, you know, it, it's important to remember this idea of Christianophobia. Um, you, on that topic of sort of the Western influence, one question I had, and I've read a little bit about is, um, particularly in the 1800s, um, there were a number of um, in, in the European and American missionaries mm -hmm. that went to, for example, in the Middle East, in Jordan, Iraq, Egypt, and had you know, some success in finding Protestant converts. Uh, are Protestant converts treated differently than their Orthodox or Catholic or otherwise indigenous Christian um, populations? Yeah, generally speaking, denomination doesn't matter much um, when it comes to Christian persecution. You know, the, those who persecute Christians are equal opportunity persecutors. Um, so no, it doesn't make too much of a difference. Uh, what I will say is over the centuries, you mentioned you go back a couple of centuries on, uh, you know, various missions from West, from the West and, and the situation of Christians in the Middle East uh, that Western missionaries found them in. The interesting thing is, and, you know, the very, very sad and grim reality is over the centuries, Christians have had no choice uh, but to abdicate their historical course um, to be charted by external forces, really. They've always been caught between, um, between competing powers, between enemies and empires, whether it's between Persia and Rome, uh, Islamism and Arabism, which we already talked about, uh, the battles between Turks and Kurds, Israelis and Palestinians. 
Christians have always been the victims of their own history. And, and you know, of course, they don't take pleasure in victimhood, unlike, you know, many, uh, you know, the, 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 the postmodern way we see today. They've always, unfortunately, been in a reactive posture to the history that they've been faced with at the mercy of their own circumstances and never in a position to write their own history or be masters of their own destiny. Uh, they, they live as tolerated dimmy in many societies. Uh, even secular societies in many cases, which Syria is, is a secular country uh, officially, but of course they are dimmy in many pockets of that country. Uh, counting time, counting the days from one genocide to the next, uh, trapped in this you know, treacherous spider web of competing factions, um, you know, in a position to, to satisfy and assuage all factions in order to maintain any uh, hope for uh, socio-political buoyancy and for that matter, survival. So it's a very unenviable and unenviable position uh, to be in. Um, I think in the past decade, um, the most spectacular events concerning Middle Eastern Christians, unfortunately, has to do with the mass atrocities committed against them by ISIS um, in Iraq and Syria as well. Um, and now ISIS, as a you know force that controls territory is no more. I mean, it still exists as an ideology, but, it, but it's different and it's, it's smaller. How has the situation of Christians in Iraq and to a lesser degree Syria changed now that ISIS is no longer a dominant force in the way it was in say, you know, 2014? Yeah, well, I'm glad you made that distinction, Cliff. That's really important to make. You know, of course they were beaten and defeated territorially, but there's still very much a presence uh, in the region, often rearing their ugly head from time to time often used as a political tool, or if not a political tool, certainly a, a weapon uh, by many area governments, including Turkey. Um, but uh, since, since the defeat of ISIS uh, and the genocide came to a conclusion of Christians in, in Iraq and Syria, a majority of Christians in Iraq have still not been able to return uh, to their homes in the Nineveh Plain and in other traditionally Christian areas. Uh, that is primarily because uh, Iranian militias still in control of the Ninwa Plain and other places in northern Iraq um, to this day. Um, if you go to these places, I have not uh, been to these places uh, myself since the conclusion of the genocide. However, many friends of mine and, and folks I work with have, and they've reported driving through the Ninwa Plain, which for the last 2,000 years has had a uniquely and unmistakable Christian character. You drive through there and you see banners of, of the Ayatollahs, you see um, you know, lots of yellow and green, which, which of course, as you know, um, are, the, are the trademark colors of Hezbollah and, and other Iranian uh, militias. So it's very grim. It's very um, ominous to drive through these areas. So there's no wonder why, why Christians have yet to return. Uh, many of them have been uh, physically inhibited from returning, and others are just intimidated and terrified to return. Um, since the, the genocide, during the genocide, and, and then the years subsequent, uh, most Christians have found uh, safe haven and, and refuge in Erbil, particularly the Christian suburb of Ankawa. Uh, they've, they've been um, very well taken care of there. They've even uh, uh, had a say in their own governance and uh, leading their own communities, which is, which is really a wonderful thing uh, for that part of the world. Uh, the KRG has mostly been helpful. Um, they are well-intentioned. I've, I've met with um, their U.S. representation here in D.C., and I've been quite pleased with, with what I've heard and learned and, and observed myself from the KRG. But of course, there are isolated incidents where the KRG could certainly uh, improve their, their response and, and, and care for these Christian communities. For example, there have been a number of 
uh, incidents of land grabbing by neighboring uh, Kurdish tribes and Arab tribes alike uh, against you know thousands of years of, of you know excuse me of lands that have been Christian lands for thousands of years. So this is certainly something we'd like to see an improvement on um, to bring back their their way of life and their uh, their ability and their capacity to stay in their homelands because these are the final Christians in Iraq. Um, as I think you pointed out in the question, you know, just a decade ago, um, there were nearly two million Christians, over 1.5 million to be exact. Today there are sub 200,000, <clears> which is quite alarming. Oh. Uh just FYI for everybody, um, I'll ask a couple more questions, then we can get to some audience questions if anybody has any. So you can type it into the Q&A box at the bottom of the Zoom screen. I'll keep it brief, Chris, because you know, I, I want to leave some good questions for our audience. <laughs> fine. Um, um, the Syrian civil war has seen atrocities committed against people of all faiths, there's no doubt. But there's no doubt also, I would say, that Christians as a minority have had a uniquely hard time of it. Can you explain a little bit more about the challenges unique to Christians in Syria during the civil war? Well, they just went through a genocide, as you pointed out. So that alone, reeling from the emotional uh, scars of genocide, as well as the, the numbers that they've uh, really lost, they've lost over 50% of, of the community that existed prior to the genocide. But uh, for those that are still there, over 90%, well over 90%, are below the poverty line, unable to take care of their own families, uh, their day-to-day -day concerns and needs. Uh, so when you're, when, you're, when you're caught between essentially a rock and a hard place and below the poverty line, persecuted for your faith, uh, something's got to give because you're being persecuted physically and, you know, and, and as well as uh, for your faith. Um, they're caught between, you know, jihadist murderers and author authoritarian regime, that is the Assad government. And, you know, although the Assad government does provide protection, it certainly comes at a, at a cost um, because the day you, you uh, upset that balance or show any, uh, you know, indication of disloyalty or even questioning, um, you, will, you will certainly pay the price by the government. Um, uh, there is some promise in the Northeast, right? There's a third option. It's not just the opposition. It's not just the, the, the regime, right? We have the autonomous administration in Northeast Syria, which is a democratic project uh, taking root in the Northeast where Christians, Muslims, Kurds of all of us ethnicities have learned to live together uh, harmoniously. Um, and what role does Turkey play in all this in um, Christian communities in Syria and or to a lesser degree Iraq? Well, I talked about the autonomous administration, that is that democratic project taking root in the north. Correct. north. Yes. Uh, Turkey is actually taking significant, aggressive, kinetic military steps uh, to destroy this project in the northeast. They're even using not just uh, conventional Turkish forces, but also ISIS fighters, former ISIS fighters, as well as current ISIS fighters. They're manipulating the cultural fabric and the demographics in the north of Syria uh, with uh, Turkification as, as their cultural weapon, apart from their kinetic weapons, uh, seeking to destroy uh, this budding democracy in the northeast. So what does that mean for Christians? Well, it means that this uh, oldest existing uh, Aramaic-speaking Christian community um, is that threat of, of extinction, uh, unfortunately, in our lifetimes, but. Um, um, one other thing going to Turkey, um, as I, has been discussed a lot in public, in 2020, President Erdogan converted Hagia Sophia, which had been um, a church, then a mosque, then a museum, back into a mosque. This was um, protested by UNESCO and many states condemned the move, yet he has persisted. Um, what does the conversion of Hagia Sophia to a mosque say about the state of Christians in Turkey in the surrounding regions? 
Well, given the backdrop of, of the last century where there was a genocide against Christians, uh, you know, looking to this day, it, it, it really confirms the gall and audacity that Erdogan and, and his uh, AKP government uh, have by converting one of the most iconic, historically significant, uh, invisible Christian churches in all Christianity. Um, you know, right as the world watches, um, this man, Erdogan, he did not care. Uh, given the history and given the context, he just did not care. Um, one of the things that his government is, is really waving the flag of right now, uh, recently they, they opened the first, supposedly what they're calling the first Christian church in modern day Turkey uh, since 1923 in Istanbul. Uh, and this is just an example of their, their gesturing and signaling that, Hey, we're, we're taking care of our Christian communities. But the truth is this so-called first Christian church is built over uh, a destroyed Syriac Catholic church. And to add insult to injury, it's built over a Syriac Catholic cemetery as well. Uh, so what does this mean for Christians in Turkey? It means more immigration. Um, because I mean, living there is just not sustainable anymore. Um, one last one before we get to some audience questions. Um, and you've alluded to this, but just because it's just a little more depth. Um, Egypt's Coptic Christians make up the largest group of Christians in the Middle East. And President Sisi has repeatedly made goodwill gestures and said nice things about them in different ways. Yet, according to many people I know that study the region and have lived in the region, um, this doesn't always translate to action on the ground and sometimes it goes the opposite way. Um, what do you view the situation of the cops in Egypt today? Does it differ historically? Is it the same? What's the future? So on and so forth. Yeah, it doesn't differ a whole lot, unfortunately. Um, you know, give a, a shred of credit, I suppose, to say that Sisi is certainly better than his predecessor Morrissey in the Brotherhood, but that's really not saying much because they they were the Brotherhood. Uh, there are still some major concerns, despite the signals and the gestures that you mentioned. Uh, cops are still second-class citizens in their own native country that they've occupied and they've lived in uh, for the last 2,000 years. Uh, the Egyptian government, uh, local governments specifically, have weaponized their legal systems and, and really cultivate this, this pervasive culture of impunity. There are violent crimes that happen every day against Christians, cops in Egypt, that go unaddressed and un, uh, un, uh, unacknowledged, frankly. A um, couple of positive gestures, sure, um, including the, the recent appointment of the first Christian uh, president, uh, who provided over the Supreme Constitutional Court, which is like the Supreme Court here in the United States. Um, I'm not a legal scholar of Egyptian law, of course, or the legal system, but uh, many experts I have spoken with said that this really will have no effect. It's a, it's a, a ceremonial position, at least it is in this case, um, which, um, you know, again, it, it's, it's done by design. Um, so to our audience questions, um, David Levine asks, we repeatedly told that the Vatican and Russian Orthodox churches must abstain from criticizing anything the Muslims inflict on Christians in the Middle East to avoid looking and avoid looking too friendly to the Jews, lest the situation of Christians deteriorate further. Do you find this credible? If you repeat the first part of your question, I'm sorry. Um, he said they, um, they're told that the Vatican and um, different Orthodox churches um, basically avoid saying too much about the plight of Christians or being too friendly towards Israel in order to uh, make keep things from getting worse for Christians was essentially his question. Do you yeah, think that's a good question? And that's really important uh, to, to consider because, yeah, uh, Orthodox churches specifically are in a position where they are, many patriarchs are, uh, they find their home in the Middle East, um, many of whom are in Syria and in other locales um, where they are 
sort of required to, to walk that tightrope and whatever they say, they're held accountable for uh, whatever they say. Um, and for that reason, I can understand. I don't, I don't like the fact that they're silent on the plight of Christians, but I can certainly understand their interest in preserving themselves and their, and their communities. I would, however, expect more from the Vatican. The Vatican um, has interests in the Middle East in terms of its people. It has, uh, you know, you know, many, many uh, uh, members of the Catholic Church in the Middle East, but it doesn't have uh, any ties that would limit it or, or limit the scope of what they can say. Um, so, yeah, for that, for that reason, I would, I would certainly hope and expect the, the Vatican to speak more. Um, <clears throat> do you think that, um, the, do you believe that Christians in the West and the plight of Christians, communities in the Middle East, is been met with relative indifference by the West, or do you think there has been um, enough a focus on it, from, or do you think there could be more? Well, there certainly could be more focus on it. Um, it's, it's a peripheral issue, unfortunately. Um, it should take center stage. I mean, as Americans, I, mean, I won't speak for the whole West, but certainly as Americans and, and a large part of the West, uh, the freedom of conscience is our first freedom because without that, nothing flows, not the freedom of speech, not the freedom of assembly or anything else that we, that we hold dear. So it should be in our social DNA to stand up for the freedom of religion uh, throughout the world. Uh, not saying we need to send troops in because of course we, the United States has, has uh, had a bad experience on that front, but uh, certainly uh, with moral support and other tools of foreign policy uh, should be used, uh, uh, you know, to, to speak up for those who are persecuted for their faith. Um, <clears throat> okay, let's see. Um, there's a question about uh, Armenia. I'll, I'll, let me modify it a little bit. Um, uh, Armenian, um, the country of Armenia finds itself in a complicated place in the world. And uh, we're there next to Turkey, Azerbaijan, Russia, and they have various um, weird alliances and such in terms, and so do their opponents. Um, can you speak a little bit to the um, the situation of Armenia and Armenian Christians? Armenian Christians have been persecuted since the time Armenia adopted its Christian character, which is in, in 301. Uh, they're famously the first Christian nation, and they've been persecuted ever since, um, if not by, you know, of course, uh, pre, uh, pre-Ottoman days, uh, of course, by the Ottoman Empire, uh, Soviet days, and even present day by, by modern day Turkey. They find themselves in a tough neighborhood, as you mentioned, uh, with, with uh, you know, Armenia, uh, excuse me, with Azerbaijan and with Turkey in its neighborhood. Uh, and with, of course, the, the radical uh, Muslim separatists of, of, uh, of the Caucasus. Um, so it, it's definitely a tough situation to be in. Uh, they find themselves uh, oftentimes having to make political alignments with themselves out of necessity, not necessarily out of preference, simply to stave off and to, 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 to hold off the, the Turkish and Azerbaijan uh, aggression. So uh, it, it's, not a, it's not a fun place to be, but they do things out of necessity. They have a very realistic and utilitarian uh, view on foreign policy, and, and they can't be discredited for that. A uh, couple of questions that are vaguely similar, and that is basically, um, it's fairly well accepted that uh, Christians in America tend to be much more pro-Israel. Um, Christians in the Middle East um, tend to be somewhat less so. Um, how do you view this issue and um, what do you think causes both attitudes? Well, like I said before, in response to one of your questions, Christians of the Middle East find themselves, see, we in the West, we in the United States, find ourselves in a neatly ordered, black and white, two-aisled political system, Republican, Democrat. 
Very simple, very, very easy to understand and navigate. In the Middle East, it's not that. It's a spider web of competing factions. And Christians are, aren't even a thread in that spider web. They're, they're the fly lying in the middle of that spider web, hoping not to be eaten today. Uh, so whatever political position they take, while I may not agree with, particularly on Israel or many others, um, I understand that they take these positions out of necessity in many cases. Uh, so I understand in the West, you know, obviously we're, we're of course more free to, to choose our, our position on Israel and other issues, and uh, which I happen to believe is, is uh, you know, one worth uh, speaking on. But uh, in the East, I can't discredit these folks one bit, given the, the context of their existence. And I think with that, we can safely say that uh, the plight of Christians in the Middle East is complicated, and those that want to preserve them and make their lives better face a large series of issues that uh, are never going to be easily sorted out, hopefully by promoting um, opposition to radical Islam and uh, more fair governments and more fair policies, we can help preserve that culture, but uh, it's always going to be messy. Anyhow, thank you very much for um, joining us uh, today, Rich, and uh, um, all of you, please join us next week for more on our webinar and podcast series. Thanks a lot. <clears throat> Thanks a lot, Cliff.